Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. We'll now have the main message for today by Pastor Bill Watson. Thanks, Adrian. Appreciate that. And good afternoon to all of you. Good to be with uh, all of you once again. I bring you greetings. It would be remiss of me not to, to include uh, greetings from the home office in Tyler, Texas, as well as my home uh, uh, group congregation there in uh, Medina, Ohio. They uh, certainly, if they were here, would give you a big hug as well, being of like mind. And uh, Adrian and Jennifer being there last week, as mentioned, um, we enjoyed their visit and potluck, and Adrian had a chance to meet uh, with my uh, in-laws and outlaws over at their swimming pool and had a little bit of an afternoon uh, on the Sabbath, stayed overnight, and then we wore him out in the studio. That's right. We had uh, Mr. Davis there uh, doing YouTubes for us in the Armor of God studio, which was, uh, I think, a unique experience for him and certainly for all of us. He did real well, by the way, as was uh, expected, and uh, it was a real pleasurable experience to see him uh, in the hot seat in more ways than one, because the seat it is hot, by the way. There's like 1,200 watts of light on that uh, seat when you're sitting on there, although we did have it turned down a little bit because everybody's a little bit different. Uh, white guys and black guys are different when you have lighting, you know. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, it was, went real well. and was a lot of fun, and uh, it certainly is something that, uh, as Adrian pointed out, is in my blood because it's very exciting to uh, have an opportunity on that level to... Um, promote the Word of God, to forge the Word of God, the Gospel, and all the things that go along with uh, advancing this good news of Jesus Christ and, of course, uh, the message that the Father has uh, given through Him. And I I wanted to take a moment, too, to thank all of you here as well uh, in Burlington and greater Canada, uh, but certainly you guys and ladies are certainly a very important part in the continuing support of the Canadian work here in Canada, specifically Burlington, of course, your brothers and sisters over in Toronto and Kitchener and Ottawa, Winnipeg and parts west uh, out there in Vancouver and so on that perhaps uh, are parts of the Church of God International and or the Body of Christ as importantly as all of us are supporting what we are doing uh, on behalf of Jesus Christ and our Father. And suffice it to say, and I want to share with you too, don't underestimate the fact that just because perhaps sometimes we look around and we see sometimes our our population of our congregations a little bit on the low side, the fact of it is we are having a major impact evangelistically on the uh, broader scope of things. So do not underestimate the, uh, the impact and effect that uh, your support, prayers, as well as money and time, effort, and sacrifice and all the things that you do in your local areas, as well as you do in your private prayer closets, as well as you do in your pocketbooks and so on, that have a major impact on people who are listening to what we're talking about uh, throughout the North American continent and the greater part of the world. Because as uh, Adrian has already started doing these Bible studies, I'm hearing a lot of good feedback from that. Uh, with regards to the uh, webcasting that he does every Wednesday night, along with many of the products that we have on the Internet for the Church of God International. If you haven't had a chance 
to uh, go ahead and just peruse the, the website, I strongly encourage you to do so because it is truly um, jam-packed with a variety of different products. I mean, whether it's the Armor of God, uh, Biblical News Updates, YouTubes, of which multiple personalities are on uh, the uh, programs or on the Internet there uh, covering a variety of subjects. And all of this serves to broaden uh, our appeal to many uh, folks uh, rather than just, you know, one personality or two personalities handling the bulk of the responsibilities. We even have these different formats for that very purpose. The web chats, I don't know how many of you have had opportunity to sit in and just hear Wayne Hendricks and myself kind of open discussion about this, that, and the other thing. And they're kind of interesting uh, from what I understand people feeding back to me because they, they like the fact that it's not as structured as a sermon. So you go down these little rabbit hole digressions and you chase that rabbit down that hole and then all of a sudden you, you have a segue and you come back and you go down that, that uh, hole and you cover a big broad category of uh, uh, subtopics in that topic that uh, oftentimes many people are apparently finding uh, some good value and edification. So uh, we're, we're encouraged with all of these things, and we're still exploring, you know, opportunities as we, we go forward. Uh, we're going to be webcasting, of course, this uh, faith outreach uh, program that we're going to be doing with this imam. And uh, that's going to be November 17th, uh, right here at the Sandman Hotel. Uh, and we're excited about that. We're also going to be doing a prophecy um, evangelistic campaign in Atlanta. Um, Mike Nolan and myself will be handling that October 1st. So we're going to try to webcast that as well. So we've got a lot of things in the cooker, a lot of things in parallel going on, not to mention writing and publications and all those things. And again, my hat, if I was wearing one, I'd tip it all to you for your continued support, as I say, in all the things that you do. So do not in any way, shape, or form uh, underestimate the value of your of your uh, work and your participation in what we are doing as a group and as a combined um, congregation of God's people. It's very, very exciting and I think very good for all of us to be working together in those areas. And let me use that as my segue to this day and age that we're living in because it is most important today of all days that we are living because these are some exciting times, are they not? Tumultuous. We've heard a lot about, uh, you know, being encouraged from the Apostle Peter, as Murray had explained to us with regards to his words there in the first chapter of First Peter. Very cogent material, very important material. And by the way, does anybody have a watch? I don't have a watch, so I, I'm going to need to know kind of my time here if I've got uh, something I wanted to reference just so, because I don't see any clocks in the room here. And just, uh, it'll come up. It will, huh? <laughs> oh, there it is. So does it stay on? This would be good. Pardon my... Uh, oh, that's good. All righty. Appreciate that. Just so I stay on time, you don't throw tomatoes at me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we are living in some tumultuous times, and I think, uh, as was pointed out, uh, it doesn't really take a rocket scientist for any of us to be looking out and about and seeing all of the things that we're being surrounded by. 
Uh, it seems every morning I get up, there's something new that hits the news, you know, some kind of a news alert that is bringing our attention to some kind of menacing catastrophe, whether it's an earthquake over there in Italy. We had one a couple of weeks ago back in China. We've got flooding going on in the southern part of the United States, down in Louisiana, where literally tens of thousands of homes are flooded, ruined completely. I mean, these people, have, for all intents and purposes, have lost their life uh, savings in many respects, uh, I mean, in material, not necessarily in money, although I'm sure it's going to impact their money, too, because they've got to uh, try to recover from all the damage and the losses that they have. So there's a lot of things, brethren, that we are finding ourselves surrounded by that's generating a lot of anxiety, generating a lot of stress in the lives of each and every one of us. And frankly, in some respects, many of us are beginning to see and sense a certain element and, and uh, air of being threatened. And what I mean by this is, and there's a, there's a couple of sources for this. I want to share with you just a few, uh, and I want to quote. I don't like to read a lot uh, normally through sermons, but I do want to quote these two items because I think they're very important for you to be aware of because oftentimes some of these things get out from underneath us and we don't really take note of them, but they are important and very critically important for all of us to be alert so that we don't get blindsided. And I'll have a little bit more to say about that if you follow through with me uh, on this as I go through this. But this is from Brett Bart. This is a very uh, credible source, and this goes back now a couple of months. I've got an old quote. This is the old quote. I'm going to quote you also a, a current quote, but first I'm going to go with the old one. This one's about two, three months old. And this is from a Swedish army general who claims that they, Swede, uh, Sweden, is now preparing for war. I want that to resonate. Listen to this, and I quote, Breitbart News recently reported that the Swedish army is preparing for war. The report states that the chief of the Swedish army, General Anders Bronström, told men under his command they could expect to be fighting a war in Europe against very skilled opponents within a few years. Continues on. This is based off of a 28-page internal military document addressed to soldiers, politicians, and guests who will be in attendance... Of a military demonstration taking place next week, the event will showcase the Army's ability to outlast its opponent in the case of a winter war. The document goes on to say that the general is basing his views off of the current atmosphere of unrest in Europe stemming from ISIS and the instability of the Ukraine. The general went on to say one can draw parallels with the 1930s. I found that very interesting because in many respects, I tend to agree with this gentleman's perspective on things, on how the world coming out of World War One, rebuilding to ultimately provide a venue for a guy named Heil Hitler. And then, of course, the rest is history with World War II and how the 30s, the 20s and the 30s were that lull before the storm that provided him the ability to gain support through the socialistic party that we came to understand to be the Nazis. At any rate, he goes on here, he says, a great uncertainty of political dynamics, which then led to uh, a great war. That time we managed, that is Sweden, managed to be kept out of it. But it's not at all... Um, pertain to what we will succeed doing in this time. In other words, he's feeling that it's going to probably include Sweden. Further in the document, the general claims he is not alone in his views, saying his colleagues believe the worst is yet to come for Europe 
and the rest of the world as well. So he's preparing his nation, his army, his troops there uh, with respect to what he's, he believes based on the writing on the wall that he sees himself and Sweden surrounded by as something very detrimental and is meriting preparation along those lines. Now I'm quoting another uh, source here in this particular case. This is the um, Freedom Outpost. It is a uh, news a source that I uh, subscribe to that is uh, very uh, keen on world events and so on. And this is just uh, going back to August 21st. So that's just a few uh, days back, August 21st. And here we go. War is coming. But unfortunately, most Americans are completely oblivious to what is about to happen. In recent weeks, tens of thousands of Russian soldiers have been massing at eight staging areas along Russia's border with Ukraine and some Pentagon officials that believe that this could represent a preparation for a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. At this point, the Russian people view the United States more negatively than they did even before the height of the Cold War and their leading th thinkers openly talk about the inevitability of a future conflict between the two superpowers. The Russians have been feverishly upgrading and modernizing their strategic nuclear forces in anticipation with this conflict. One of the reasons that is contributing to this, of course, is the fact that a lot of behind-the-scenes dialogue and different discussions from American leaders that have now been uncovered in emails that should not have been known, that are now known to the whole world because she used an unauthorized website. Hello, with material that was top secret, and yes, it was top secret. And a woman in her position as the leader of the state uh, leading in that post should have known better. I mean, when you are a carpenter, you come to work with a tool belt that has hammers and saws, right? You don't come as an electrician if you're a carpenter. And so it is the Secretary of State knows very well what they are responsible for. Back quoting, unfortunately, the U.S. material, military, that is, the U.S. military has not made similar strides under the Obama administration. As a result, the balance of power has shifted dramatically in favor of the Russians. And I'm here to tell you that is true because over the last years, the U.S. military has been gutted. We have less men and women in our military forces today, one of the lowest amounts ever since World War II. Our nukes are not being maintained, nor is the technology that fires them and or the surveillance equipment to be able to counter being maintained or upgraded with new software and things along those lines. So needless to say, while we're sitting on our thumbs and doing nothing, and the world is what it is, brethren, others, namely enemies of North America, are growing fast. I go back here to quote, War is coming. I'm sorry. Uh... So something big may be about to come down in the Ukraine. The Ukrainian soldiers that are stationed, I'm back quoting, on the eastern border with Russia. However, things have already escalated to a conventional conflict. 
For example, in certain cities along the uh, Azov Sea, coast uh, east of port city of Mariupol, Ukraine forces have reported being the target of over 200 rounds of mortars and artillery fire in the middle of the night by separatist forces, which, by the way, are backed by the Russian military. It goes on, the Pentagon has identified eight staging areas, we read that, as many as 40,000 Russian troops, including tanks, armored vehicles, and Air Force units of the Russian military, are now arrayed along the Ukraine eastern border with Russia. Additionally, large numbers of Russian military forces will conduct exercises on a daily basis. It goes on, when it comes to geopolitics, way too often the Russians are playing chess while the Obama administration is playing checkers. And as I mentioned in the opening paragraph, that is this guy that's writing, the Russians are very much preparing for the day when there will be a military showdown between the United States and Russia. They are serious. Russia is preparing to test fire. I don't know how many of you have heard of this. I haven't heard, seen, or even smelled any story close to this on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, your television stations here, uh, Canadian TV. Listen to this. Russia is preparing to test fire a nuclear weapon, which is so powerful. What we hear is about North, North, North Korea and, uh, you know, the guy that's got one or two nukes but doesn't have a delivery system. These guys, the Russians, are test firing a nuclear weapon, which is so powerful it could reportedly destroy a whole country in seconds. It's called, very fitting name, Satan 2. It's a missile called Satan 2, rumored to be the most powerful ever, ever designed and is equipped with stealth technology to help it dodge enemy radar systems. This terrifying doomsday weapon is likely to strike fear into the hearts of Western military chiefs as currently missile defense technologies are totally incapable of stopping it. Someday, a fleet of Russian nuclear subs will come right up to our coastlines without even knowing that they were there in the middle of the night. They could surface, launch these missiles, strategic targets, which start to deploy uh, in a couple of minutes. And if the U.S. was even able to muster much of a response, the Russian anti-ballistic missile systems are able to destroy just about anything that we could throw at them. And this particular one is one missile, but when it ignites, 12, a dozen warheads go off in different directions to 12, a dozen different uh, sites. And any one of those 12 that go out can level the territory of the state of Texas in seconds. And we hear last week bullets being fired from a destroyer over in the Middle East over some Iranian boats that came uh, through there. I've already referenced North Korea and his continued saber-rattling. I don't need to remind all of us of what's going on in Europe with the Islamic population that is influxing into Europe throughout all the areas, all the countries from North Africa, Middle East, all coming into Europe, not by the tens of thousands, brethren, not by the hundreds of thousands. We're talking millions of people that are going into these cities like Cologne, uh, Helsinki, 
Uh, we're talking Amsterdam. We're talking Brussels. We're talking London. We're talking areas in Paris that are no-go zones already. The police won't even go in there, like up in Michigan, where we have uh, certain areas in Greenfield Village, where the Ford Museum is, where the police won't even, the Detroit police won't even go in those areas. Hamtrak, Michigan, which is completely now run by a Muslim community and consequently moving more and more into these areas where these cities, let alone even countries like Germany, Belgium, France, are changing. It's not the same. It's not the same as it was years ago. We have continued concerns about the United States, even for that matter, with regard to here, though we have had somewhat, somewhat, Canada too, been in a bubble whereby we have not had what you could say the same effect going on as what we're seeing in Europe. But don't kid yourself. Stay tuned. It's coming. And already we see some of that happening here in Canada. And, of course, in the United States, let me remind all of you that since uh, 2009, 500,000 refugees, that's not immigrants, don't get them confused. It's an important distinction to make. These are people on the run from their countries that most cases have no papers, no background, no way to vet them, to know who and where they came from even. They might say they're from from. Somalia, Sudan, whatever, but they're really from Turkey or they're from Syria. We don't know. They could say their name is Joe Smith and it's really Anne Grant. You know, they, we don't know who they are, where they're from. Papers that they do have, there's no, no way in shape or form knowing even if they're valid or legitimate in so many areas. And as I say, 500,000 since 2009. In 2011, 6,500 Syrians were settled in Kentucky. 6,500 Syrians settled in Kentucky. In 2016, the United States expects, that's this year, that's this year, we expect to take 85 to 100,000, not immigrants, not immigrants, refugees, into the United States. Hillary Clinton openly in her campaigning has already said she wants to increase that over the, over the span of her first four years in office. 550%. 550%. We are in serious conditions. The circumstances that we are now facing... Uh, Pastor Murray talked about persecution and things of this sort. Complexions are changing in more ways than one, brethren. Culturally, culturally, very important we begin to recognize that if indeed our leaders don't begin to see the handwriting on the wall, we are going to be in a vibrant change, a change that is indeed going to escalate conditions and circumstances right here in North America that do portend to bring far more conditions and situations like what happened in Paris, what happened in Nice, San uh, Bernardino, Orlando. And that was a homosexual, by the way, nightclub where 49 of those people were killed. But guess what? I've got a good statement for all of us. And it's important for us to remember. 
God is still on his throne. God is still in control of the circumstances. God still has a plan. God still does fully intend to bring you to birth in the resurrection. And God still fully intends to achieve and accomplish the count that he has in mind for that first resurrection. He's in charge, brethren. The salvific program of God the Father through Christ that you're a part of. And some of you who are perhaps not baptized but are indeed exposed to. Have a tremendous privilege, as was mentioned by the Apostle Peter. A great privilege that we are connected to, that we are part and parcel to. And that's sometimes, uh, brethren, we don't, I don't believe anyway, really take time to appreciate the depth, the scope, the breadth of what you're being offered. Do you know, we talked about it after the Bible, so we talked about the freedom from the bondage of death, the ability to know that you don't have to fear dying. Pastor uh, Davis brought up the fact, the manner of death. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly a concern. My daughter used to often say that, Dad, I don't care about dying. It's how. <laughs> you know, how I'm going to die. That's what matters. And, and certainly that is, I'm sure, part of the, part of the formula, the ingredients of, of this whole thing. But the bottom line is, brethren, we have a calling that gives us such a wonderful benefit that it is amazing. It's priceless. You can't even conceive oftentimes because we're even told we see through a glass darkly, don't we? It's a peak hole. You don't see the whole thing. You just look through the whole thing. And I see Murray. I don't even know there's more people in this room. I see a few heads here. Oh, I see two more. But I don't see the whole gamut. And I won't see it. Because being in the spirit world requires us a different birthing, doesn't it? requires us a different body. And that's coming. That's coming. But we don't get it. I, I think sometimes, brethren, we oftentimes allow it to go over our heads without taking time out to really value what you are involved with. Let me turn your attention over here to Matthew for a moment. To Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. I want to bring to your attention a very well-known parable that many of you are very familiar with. It is the uh, Ten Virgins. Many of us are well aware of the Ten Virgins. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I think a lot of you have that uh, parable already in your minds. You've got it pretty well 2020, and you understand that you know five were foolish and five were wise. And the fact of it was is that uh, essentially what we're being told is five were prepared and the other five were not prepared. But I want to bring your attention to one thing about that parable, and that is located over here in verse 5. I want to bring this to your attention. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slept. All ten of them, even the five that were prepared, were asleep. They all slumbered and slept. Every one of them. And the fact of it was, Interestingly, five of them were prepared. My challenge to all of us is, even though we may think we're awake, it is important for us to be sure we are awake. 
Complacency is a funny thing. There's two aspects to it. We call it Laodicean. But it's real. It's real. Don't kid yourself. Some of us, some of us amongst ourselves, are nonchalant. Maybe even perhaps a little cavalier about our faith. Comfortable. I still got my two cars. I got my nice house. Got my job. I got a vacation once in a while, two, three weeks. Get my sick days. Go to the feast. I eat. I drink. I'm merry. No, I'm Bill. I'm just. But you know, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. We're, we're we're comfortable, and that's an element. That's a side of the coin. That's a side of the coin of being asleep. Complacency. The other side is I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. I don't need anything. I don't need congregations. I don't need fellowship. I don't need a minister. I don't need a minister. I, I don't even need a guy handling the PA. You know, I, I don't need that. I, I can be at home. I put my feet up on a hassock, pop open a beer and watch a DVD or a thumb drive or whatever I do or just hot wired off the Internet. And I'm happy, you know, because I, I'm my own man. You know, I, I'm, I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. I've got my faith where I want it to be. I don't need to make commitments and dedicate my energies and my life to anything. Oh, brethren. And there is an element amongst us like that. We call them, sadly, oftentimes, independence, where they really don't want to be a part of any congregation, even though they're gifted people, even though they're, they're well-rounded people, that they could bring a lot to the table. But for whatever reason, be, they, be it baggage or complacency or just their own sense of feeling superior, don't want to go ahead and, and participate. But it's very important, brethren, it's very important that, as pointed out over here, and I want to turn your attention over here to the book of James, chapter 2. Book of James, chapter 2. That we get this in our minds. And Pastor uh, Paul Mateer Murray, he brought it up in the writings there of First Peter's wonderful Bible study, sets this presentation up very well in the sense that what James is talking about here in chapter 2 is very important that we all get. That in our walk, in our walk of faith, in the development of this reality we call Christianity and making it a part of our mind so that we might be able to capture the vision to the point where it's real to us. Because it better be real, brethren. Because if it's not real, you're going to be sucking wind for motivation. You will be on the short side of the stick. You need to understand these words are indeed true. And part of the formula in getting these words to be resonant more in you, to where they work more toward a reality, is very plainly put by James, where he says, What does it profit a man, in verse 14, chapter 2 of the book of James, though a man say he's got faith and has not works, can faith save him? Just believe on the Lord Jesus. Can that save you? Could it? Good girl. No, it can't. It cannot. Look at down. Look at these few verses down here. Uh, you believe that there is one God? You do well. So do the demons. So do the demons. No, no. It takes more. Notice verse 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute or daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, 
Be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? In other words, if all you're going to do is be an inactive person who says their faith but never does anything, what profit is that? It's zero. God wants us to validate our faith, and that's the whole point of James chapter 2, by what we do. Show me your faith by what you do. Don't show me your faith by what you don't do, because if you don't show anything, then the faith that you're claiming you have is highly suspect. It's highly questionable. You don't take, at least I hope you don't, and if you do, you need to learn this simple point, that you don't really determine and and evaluate the profile of an individual by what they say, do you? You profile them by what they do. Exactly. Because if you profile and you assess and you evaluate, I'm not talking about condemning, I'm not talking about judging, I'm just talking about business associations, interpersonal relationships, just getting along with one another. That's all I'm talking about. Just normal, common Easy discussion, your normal process of evaluating, assessing, and so on. With that being said, you don't evaluate by what they say, because if you do, you're setting yourself up. You interact and you learn about people by what they do. What they do tells you what they believe. So it's important, brethren. It's important that we understand that this faith that we're involved with, requires action. It does. Look at over here in Peter. I'm going to jump ahead of uh, Pastor Murray here and go to Second Peter, chapter 3. And I'm just going to take a little section here. Chapter 3, I want to jump in on verse 2, roughly. Uh, he sets up the second epistle, verse 1. He says, Beloved, I'm going to write to you now, verse 2, that you might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the prophets and of the commandments and by us the apostles and the Lord Savior, knowing this first, verse 3, that there shall come in the last days mockers and scoffers and people that will undermine you and tell you that you don't know what you're doing and you're crazy for believing in all of this stuff, that a guy raised from the dead and now he's in heaven alive at the right hand of some other guy named God the Father? Why, you're nuts! And there are people like that today. Many of the Muslims are like that. They're Antichrist. They say it right in the Koran. The Koran says, Jesus didn't resurrect. It does say that. It's right in the Koran. He says here, Peter continues, and saying, where's the promise? Yeah, you always said he's going to come back, and he never does. I just did an Armor of God television program. We're going to be start producing it. It's uh, about the um, understanding prophecy. And I did a little research in doing this program, and we're producing it now. And we put a timeline together from the time of the early New Testament church upwards to our day and age. And it's amazing. We couldn't even put all of the guys, Christian ministers, who claimed Jesus was going to return with dates on the timeline because we didn't have enough time to put it in there, you know. But my bottom line is, what I'm trying to say and explain here is, is that there are people over and over the years, literally over the decades, centuries, and millennia, who have claimed Jesus would come back, and he didn't, and that has undermined our faith. It's undermined our faith. It's caused people to claim, you've always said that. You guys, you're, you're hallucinating, you're delusional. And so it says, 
And Peter knew it. He anticipated it way back in the first century. He says in verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of how God you know, started the world in, in water and out of water and how it was overflowed. He says in verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in, in uh, store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment. Not water this time. And perdition of ungodly men. But the love, verse 8, don't be ignorant of this one thing. That a day is like to the Lord a thousand years. A thousand years is like one day. Verse 9. So here's the point. See, God has a different perspective, a different concept of what time is like. A, a millennium is like a day to God? Wow. Now that's pretty big. That's pretty big. And when you think about it, that's hard to put your, uh, your mind around when you think in terms of a 24-hour day, that God is operating on such a large scale. But yet that's what Peter is trying to encourage us to understand uh, that God doesn't work on the same, same level or scale that we work on. So, he says, verse 9, in lieu of that, with that in mind, keep this in mind, the Lord's not slacking his promises. All you mockers, all you people that are being satires, Satirists, hey, no, 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 no. He's not slack in his promise. Some men, as, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that's the key. That's what's underscoring this whole thing. God continues to allow and afford time for the purpose of being able to bring more into the account. He's got an agenda. He's working this plan of his. He wants to save as many as he can so that that first resurrection is ready and prepared. He's putting together a Gideon's army to establish what he needs in order to reinstitute the laws of God in that millennium. You're part of that, brethren. You're being called to be a part of that. And so it's patience that we need as we work through these circumstances and see the world around us almost like a train wreck in, in action. And it's sad. I, I groan. I groan oftentimes every morning when I think about what is going on in the world. The corruption. The corruption in leadership and politics in the U.S. on both sides of the aisle and up here also on both sides of your aisle is just outrageous. It's horrific. And it's to the point now where other nations, our enemies beholding the corruption, can't believe it themselves. To the point where they're getting to a condition of mind of let's just put them out of their misery. They're a bunch of miserable so-and-sos, look at them. And with these emails and all these private conversations in our leadership on that level being disclosed, do you realize how bad that looks? And nobody in the media holds anybody accountable. Hillary Clinton should be in jail. It's a fact. It's sad, but it's a fact. And I'm not promoting the Republican side. I'm just saying facts are facts. 
And in God's church, we shouldn't be afraid to back off on things when we know are not right to say, guess what? They're not right. They're not right. Sadly, one of the main reasons why we have gone off the rails we've gone off is because the pastors haven't kept the people in check over the decades. We have abandoned our God. We've become a heathenistic, secular, neo-paganistic society of which now we're beginning to see it manifest its fruit. That's what's happening. It's just the way it is. It's the fruition of the fruit. And it's coming home, as they would say, to roost. cock a doodle And it's coming home to roost. And sadly, it's not very easy, consequently, to wait in patience, is it? Because in the meantime, we Christians, as we walk in this dirty world attempting to stay clean, find ourselves challenged in more ways than one. So it's important, brethren. It's important that in spite of the world we see crumbling around us or the train wreck that's happening right in front of our eyes, to recognize something, that we have to continue to work and work hard and vigilant to stay clean in a dirty world. And therefore, if indeed you're going to do that, it is important to understand where the source of these challenges, where the source of sin, where the sources of temptation are coming from. I want to give you three sources. I'm going to give you three sources. And then I'm going to expand it a bit. The first source, the first source that all of us need to be aware of, and we need to be very keen on, and we need to be very alert to, and it comes at you fast, is the society at large. Our society, our system, Everything about it is designed to undermine your faith, to pull you off of God, to basically cut your legs out from under you and to put your faith in things, in stuff. It's designed to develop idolatry in your life so that you prioritize your drive, your goals, your objectives toward the physical. It's very seductive. Oh, it's seductive. The advertising, the way things are characterized, the fancy free and footloose lifestyles. We've got to be so careful, brethren, because it is very seductive to afford this kind of situation in our lives. It is very, very de- uh, detrimental and dangerous. Look over here to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. Matthew chapter 16. I want you to notice something. Jesus couldn't have said it in any better terms than this chapter 16 toward the end of the chapter i'm just going to break into the context for the sake of time no way to slow this down huh uh verse 26 for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul or what shall a man give in exchange for his id as it was said by some of the philosophers, the spirit in man that makes you who you are. Because as we were told, don't fear those who can only kill the body, but who also can kill your existence. That's who we're to fear. 
And what we're talking about here is there's nothing. That's the point. There's nothing in this world, whether it's a career, whether it's a car, whether it's a wife, whether it's a husband. Whether it's some pursuit of a location or a trip uh, out to the Yukon or down through the inner waters on a cruise ship. There's nothing, brethren, that's worth compromising the faith that we have. As much as we might want to do something other than what we have been able to accomplish in our lives or experience in our lives. The fact of it is, start making a bucket list for the millennium. (laughs) Bottom line is that's not important now. What's important is to get that body, get into that resurrection, get that spirit dimension so that you are defined, embodied in that empowerment. So then, then you can have an opportunity to help our God reinstitute the laws for the spread of mankind's benefit. And then later on, Man, Katie, bar the door. That's when life begins after the millennium. And let me remind all of you, remember, the the Feast of Tabernacles, you know, we sometimes get mindset that, well, it's representing the millennium. No, 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 no. It represents the kingdom of God. The millennium's a warm-up. The millennium is just what you could say, really, the, the warm-up session. Because from there, once we get beyond the millennium, brethren, that's when life begins. The Father's coming back to earth. He's going to live here with us. And from here, who knows? Your speculation is as good as mine. My Bible says the end. I crossed it out and put the beginning. But I don't know what goes on beyond then. No more than you do. But I do know this. Paul said, I reckon. I reckon. Romans 8. That there's nothing in this world worth comparing to what God has in store for us in that millennium and thereafter. Once you're born again, brethren, it is going to be an amazing, amazing experience. And so it's so important. Control that source. Control your exposure. Don't put yourself in the line, figuratively speaking, of fire. Watch yourself. Be, be on your toes. Be on your game. Second source, yourself. Oh, the devil made me do it. Nah. Not always, not always, oftentimes it's just our own lack of discipline, our own lackadaisical, cavalier approach, or laziness of not wanting to exercise the energy or the focus needed to do what needs to be done. I'll tell you a little story. This last week, I was out playing baseball with my seven-year-old grandson. I used to be a pretty good ball player. So I know a few things about baseball. So at any rate, he's out there, and I'm trying to give him some batting practice. And the fact of it is, is that in his case, he was swinging and missing all the time, swinging and missing all the time. So I started focusing in on some certain techniques to give him a little bit of insight on how to hit that ball and how to make a connection with the bat. Because we were talking about, in this case, hitting, not, not fielding. And so one thing led to another, and we got to talking and so on. And so finally I said, you're not, being, you're, you're, you're not really concentrating. You've got to watch the ball. Can't keep your eye off the ball and don't just keep swinging the same or doing the same thing and expecting a hit. Don't expect, figuratively speaking, repeating the same patterns and you think you're going to change the cycles. I'm going to keep eating the way I eat, but I'm going to lose weight sooner or later. No, you won't. No, you won't. You get what I'm saying? 
You got to change your pattern to change the cycle. So guess what? You bring the bat to the ball. If the ball's outside, you want to hit it down to first baseline, take a swing at it if you're a right-hander. If you want to hit it, if you're left-handed like he is, you want to hit it down to third baseline, look for that outside pitch and do it. Grab it and hit it down that third baseline instead of down the first baseline, which a left-hander, if he pulls it down the first baseline, he can do that. So he learns these little insights. But he's got to understand that if he swings here and I'm the pitcher because I'm against him, I want to strike him out, I'm going to go high or I'm going to go low because I know he's swinging all the time here. So guess what? I'm just going to make him miss every time. But once he understood, oh, i got to follow the ball. <laughs> now he's got it. And guess what he was doing? Whacking him. He was whacking him out of the infield, out of the grass. And that's a good thing, you see. But you've got to watch yourself. What's your triggers? We talked about triggers. What's your trigger? You know, my trigger is not mixed drinks. I have no problem with mixed drinks. You can line up a ton of mixed drinks. From gin and rum and all that in front of me. And you know what? I'll have Perrier. Water. <laughs> but now you put a little brandy out there, like Cavassier, you know, then I, then I might do that. But you might not like it. You might not even like the way it smells because it's pretty strong, depending on what type it is. It's Napoleon. It's really good. It's nice and smooth. But my point is, brethren, we all have different triggers. We all have different triggers, and we got to be alert to those triggers so that if, in fact, we do have a problem, guess what? If you are an alcoholic, don't drink. Don't drink. I don't care if you're in God's church and you think you've got God's Holy Spirit and you can be empowered to overcome the, the desire to turn back into an active alcoholic. Don't tempt God. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Don't need to go back there, especially if you've been sober for 10 years, 5 years, 15 years. Don't tempt God with what you think now you've got a new toy of empowerment and you can go ahead and exercise some new freedoms. When I tried to quit smoking, you know how I did? I used to smoke two packs a day when I was a teenager. I started when I was 14, smoked two packs a day by the time I got to about 19. You know how I quit? I stopped buying them. But you know what? That took discipline. But I knew, me, that if I would buy them, I'd smoke them. So I stopped buying them, and then I borrowed them from Gordon. <laughs> I say that figuratively. But I got to the point where I embarrassed myself with my buddies because they would finally say, Bill, get your own pack. And they would embarrass me. And guess what? I stopped asking them because I got stopped wanting to get embarrassed. But that took discipline, see. You change the pattern. I'm not buying them anymore. I'm going to borrow them. Now you're insulting me. So now I'm embarrassed. So now I'm going to change that pattern. And guess what? The cycle changed. And I wasn't smoking anymore. We've got to know ourselves, brethren. Understand, the second source is yourself. The first source is the society around us. Third source, don't kid yourself, Satan and his minions. It's a spiritual world we live in. It's a spiritual world we live in. And don't kid yourself, he knows your triggers. He knows your triggers, and he will take opportunity if, he, if you do open up an opportunity to him to exercise or exacerbate those triggers on you. Turn over here to Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, real quickly here. Understand, this is the world we live in. Uh, he, that is Satan the devil, works in two ways. Uh, primarily, most of the time, in 80 to 90% of the time, brethren, he will work in a vexating mode. 
He will vex you. He vexes you through your psychology, your mind, on what you think based on what you might read, hear, or see, smell, or taste. Psychology, the mind. And secondly, he will vex you through emotion, your feelings. Oh, I feel this way. Oh, when I smell that, it just brings back such memories. And first thing you know, nostalgia, hormones. We are a bundle, brethren, of emotions and mentality, psychology. Satan knows how to access those to use them against us. It's called vexation. It could be a song. Oh, I remember where I was when I heard that song. Yeah. Oh, I remember nothing about that. <laughs> you know. Songs, foods, places, memories. Driving in the car down the old street. My wife and I, we've got some memories when we were dating and so forth. When we were younger, we'd go by a place and we say, oh, you remember that? Yeah, oh, yeah, I remember that. Oh, let's talk about something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you, you know what I'm saying? These are the things. And first thing you know, these are called triggers. They're called triggers. And all of a sudden you break out crying. You don't even know why you're crying. But you've got an emotional move. Notice this. Look at this. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Ephesians. And you who he's quickened, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. This is the course of the world according to the prince of the power of the air. He's roaming. We're re we read in Peter that he is stalking you. And believe you me, you of all peoples on this planet are targets. I've often said this, you've probably heard me say this before, where there's light, there's bugs. You're light. Wherever you walk in the spirit world, you are a light to these demonic influences, to these demonic roaming spirits. And guess what? If they can grab a moment on you, they will. They want you out. They want you disqualified. They don't like what we represent. You know why? We represent their replacements. We represent their downfall. We actually undermine their authority, you see. So they're not too happy about what we are doing, among whom also we had our conduct, our lives in times past, verse 3, chapter 2, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. And it is, brethren, as I've often said, there are different predispositions we all have with one another that varies and, and adds to the variety of triggers that we all have. And as I've tried to point out already, what might, what might be one man's poison is not another man's. It's another man's food. And things that Christ allows us within the body of Christ still may not be good for that individual within the body of Christ. And therein lies Romans 14, why we've got to be in sync with some of these things out of consideration, courtesy, and care for one another. It's so important that we understand, that we understand that what we're involved with here 
is certainly a spiritual fight. It says here, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy for great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And we could go on over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where it says that our fight, our fight is not in flesh and blood, but it is, as you understand in spirits, in high places, things sometimes that we don't even understand where it's coming from. Why is he thinking that or she's thinking that? I didn't say that. What made her think that? Why is she accusing me or he's accusing me of doing this? How did I get in this mode of relationship with this individual? What were the circumstances? How did they get so out of hand? Sometimes things move so fast that it's hard to even wrap your arms around it to try to stop it, to get a handle on it. And sometimes in the back seat, Behind the curtain, because you see, we don't live in total reality, brethren. Admit it, we don't. They see us, we don't see them. They have a tremendous advantage in that regard, especially through the windows, the windows of our emotion and our psychology. Three sources, three sources. The world, you, and the demonic influences we are surrounded by is where some of these things come from. But now, there are three windows that these sources feed to allow you to be influenced and digest to where the changes and negative influences could occur if you allow it. Three windows to your heart and mind. You know what they are? Pastor Murray already mentioned them. He couldn't think of them, but they're located over here in 1 John. Let's go over there. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. He says here in verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, I've written unto you, fathers, because you have known him. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 15. Break in uh, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what that's talking about is, again, not allowing this physical life to take priority in your life to the point where you allow the things in this lifetime to become an idol or a pursuit that supersedes your pursuit of of God in your life. And so he's saying, don't allow that. Don't be be aware of it. Don't afford that opportunity because verse 16, here it is, the three windows. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And get this, the world passes away, the lusts thereof. So what's the point? You see, that's what John is driving at here. They pass away, the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God, therein lies the key. You abide forever. So it's a no-brainer. What John is saying here is that these, these windows that we allow the world, that we allow ourselves, that we allow Satan into us through the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the ego and the pride of our lives, through these windows, to allow that, don't allow it to hit you off your saddle, to knock you out, to take you off. 
You need to put some screens in those windows. You need to put a screen in the lust of your eyes so the bugs that are going to, you're going to attract <laughs> can't get into the mind, can't get into the heart. They get hit on the screen and they're out. They stay out. The key is, what are the screens? How do we protect ourselves from not allowing the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, and the pride of our life to give way to afford the world, ourselves, and or demon influences to impact us. Time is moving on. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians to begin to answer some of this. How do we put these screens in to these windows to our mind and to our heart? 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians, brethren, chapter 10. Very important to realize, very important to recognize, very important to comprehend that these are keys to putting these screens in place so that you can filter out these influences that come from the sources of the world, from your own triggers that you grew up with due to your upbringing, due to the way the par- your parents handled you, due to all of this, the neurosis and, and psychoses that you grew up with because of maybe abuses or maybe things that you didn't get that you wanted, things the way you were handled when you were small that have now grown into problems that you're still dealing with and trying to untangle yourself with, all of that stuff that the world you and the demonic influences use as accesses through your nature, which is made up of the lust of your flesh, the lust of your eyes, and your pride and your ego. Those are the ways in. Guard them. Got to put the screens up. Here's a screen. Part of the ingredients of putting a screen in. Putting a screen in. Chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, verse 4. Realize our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down the reasonings. Oh, we can reason our way. We can reason our way out of anything. I had a guy in the church tell me, well, I didn't like the fact that you told me, Bill, that I can't smoke. I said, what? What do you mean you can't smoke? Well, of course, you you shouldn't smoke. You're in the church. You you shouldn't smoke. He said, well, I don't see it in the Bible. Well, you've got a point there. I can't find any thou shall not smoke. I can find thou shall not eat pork. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. Shouldn't eat shellfish and crabs and all that stuff. I, I got that. But you know what? He had a point. But let's use some common sense. Just because you smoke one cigarette a week means it's okay? So if I have a girlfriend and I visit her just once a month, is that okay? Or if I have bacon once a month or twice every five months, is that okay? Of course not. But yet the Bible says I can't smoke. But the pack of cigarettes says it creates cancer. It causes cancer. And what are you? The temple of God. You should not defile that temple. Oh, but we can reason. Guess what? I made no headway. He's a church member. Now, some organizations throw him out. (laughs) But we won't. Because guess what? 
we have understanding that God will work with him and bring him to that. And God willing, he will. Pray for that individual. I'm not going to tell you his name. Pray for that individual. Put him on your prayer list that he will come to his senses and realize smoking causes cancer. The package says it. Read it every time you smoke. Every t- I, t- I told him that. I said, every time you smoke, don't forget to read the package before you light up. Just so that you understand. I should have told him to also go and read Corinthians about the fact that he's the uh, temple of God, too. But I forgot to tell him that. But at any rate, point being, in this particular case, understand casting down your reasonings. Don't reason. Take accountability. Hold yourself accountable. Be responsible for the walk that you are exercising in Christ. He says here, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's the challenge, brethren. Every thought, every emotion, every, every inkling of how I, I daydream even. These are things that I need to separate myself from if indeed they're counterproductive to Christ crucified, Christ in me. These are important things to recognize I have a responsibility to continue to thwart that kind of influence that might try to take me in a different direction. And having in readiness to revenge, or in this particular case, retaliate, to, to um, uh, vindicate all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Philippians chapter 4. Go to Philippians chapter 4, and in verse 8 through 13, we read, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest and just and pure, lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue that is, uh, in this particular case, any excellence, that's what that means, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul using himself as an example, illustrating, of course, that's how we ought to be. We should be an example. We should be an example. Paul was an example. And he's calling, he's leveraging his own example to the people at Philippi to be like him. Which is a good indication Paul was walking the walk. Verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you care, your care of me has flourished against wherein you were also careful but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want. Good point here. For I have learned. And have we? We should ask ourselves this. Paul did. He learned in whatsoever state he's in. He's content. Verse 12. I know both how to be humbled. And I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And Romans 12, I'm going to give you some homework here. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. That's the end of the chapter. And Romans 13, verses 1 uh, through 14. These two chapters, brethren, illustrate in some respects what needs to be done, what needs to be done in the walk that you have. It is the goal-setting chapters. These are, these are objectives for every Christian to inculcate into their lives and to put them on the board and attempt to aspire to these characteristics, aspire to these virtues. 
and to be seriously doing the best you can by utilizing the opportunities that come your way through the people that you know or the situations you find yourself contending with throughout the course of your life. And it doesn't have to always be in the church. Think outside the box. It deals with your neighbor. It deals with the guy at work or the gal at work. It deals with perhaps somebody at school. It deals with the lady that is in the, uh, in the uh, grocery store. Did you ever think about doing things for other people, if nothing else, just to compliment them? As you're standing there to, to uh, you know, check out your, your, your stuff, you see somebody with a, a nice tie or a nice dress or they got something that's worth complimenting. I'm not saying to patronize people. But to be genuine, practice the sincerity, practice the care, practice. You, you see somebody, I, I'll tell you a story. I was in Ottawa. I was in Ottawa and I was going to church, but it was early because they have um, afternoon services, I, I think. And I was having lunch. I checked out of the hotel. I had a couple of hours. I think it was two o'clock or something that they start. So I'm in a parking lot. I went into a grocery store. I got myself some food, uh, a salad and so on. And I'm sitting in my car and I'm eating. I got the air conditioning on and I'm eating my lunch there in Ottawa, waiting to go to church and I see a family oh, they were probably maybe in their early 30s or so mid 30s perhaps a husband and wife a heterosexual family and, and and in this case they had two kids a little boy and a little girl the kids were maybe six maybe seven five I don't know hard to tell but they could obviously talk and walk and they were having a good time with mom and dad on Saturday afternoon and I'm sitting there and I'm just eating my salad and my got a little soup and I'm, I'm watching them and they all get out of the car and they're laughing and I'm just people watching. You know, you ever people watching, people watching. I'm, I'm just watching them and they're, they're really having a good time. You could tell they're all happy and they're, they're getting along and they, they walk off and they go to the ice cream store and they disappear inside the store. And so I'm just still eating there. And all of a sudden, here they come out about, I don't know, 15 minutes later or so. I'm a slow eater. And uh, they come out. And they don't go back to their car. They don't go back to their car. They go and sit on the grass adjacent to the sidewalk. They sit on the grass. And all four of them are just sitting there and they're sharing their Sundays or whatever. You know, they didn't have ice cream cones. They had the, uh, the little cartons, you know, and they're eating. They had whipped cream over and all that. And I'm just watching them. So I'm done. They're not. They're still eating. So I drive by and I stop the car. <laughs> I unroll the window. And I said, Thank you for such a wonderful example of a family. You guys are great. They were like, they just stared at me like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> and I said, thanks a lot for being who you are. And I drove away. I bet they're still talking about it. I'm still talking about it. <laughs> but it was great. And, and it's just something that, you know, brethren, that... Oftentimes we, we don't, that's me, of course, maybe not you, but the bottom line is what I'm saying is take notice of things, participate, have, take opportunity to exercise God's spirit in you. Look, read Romans 12, read Romans 13, take note of those attributes, those virtues, inculcate, absorb, breathe in and make them a part of you by exercising them out in your personality through the manifestation of your own behavior. Make the changes. That's what conversion's all about. We're called to convert. And when you make a mistake, you're also called to continue to repent. Repentance is just not before baptism. It's a way of life. I stand up here before you, certainly not perfect in any way, shape, or form. I repent constantly. 
Not that I'm that bad of a guy, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, but it is a reality. We have to have a way of life. We have to remain humble and, and certainly do the best we can to, to strive to achieve those things that are mentioned over in uh, Romans, as I said, Romans 12 and uh, 13. As we close this up, time is getting by me here, um, I wanted to turn over here to Mark chapter 13 because here's what we're talking about, brethren. We're talking about a very important aspect of the Christian walk. And I think it's important for all of us to understand. I've been dancing around this word all through this presentation, but I want to focus now on this and kind of bring this all down to something that we can hopefully take away from uh, in this presentation as, as we went through all of the course of uh, discussion here. Verse 32 of Mark 13, it says, look, nobody knows when the time is coming when Jesus is going to return. No one knows. That's a fact. We understand that. Therefore, Mark says this, take heed, take heed, watch. Now, this word watch basically means be awake. Just be awake. There's another word watch that's going to be used here in the same section. It's a different word watch. You don't get the distinction of the two watches. Uh, not, not two watches, but two watches. You don't get the, the uh, distinction between these words being used in the English. But this one means basically, essentially what you're going to do is you're going to be awake. As I told Preston, getting in the batter's box and being awake doesn't get you hits. You can be wide awake in that batter's box, but guess what? You're still missing something. You're still missing something. You can be out on a shortstop like me, wide awake, fully agile, ready to run right, left, you know, whatever, double play set up. I know, I know where all the guys are, but guess what? Being awake doesn't make me a good shortstop. Here's what makes us good. The difference. Verse 34. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, that's you and I, by the way, to every man his work, and commanded the porter to... Different word. Different word. To be vigilant. To be watchful, awake and vigilant and watchful. In other words, you are now focused. You are emotionally tied into a sense of vigilance about yourself. And you've got screens inserted into your lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of your life. And you've got yourself in check because you're watching yourself. And this particular Greek word that I'm talking about here, brethren, is the Greek word that um, essentially uh, is, uh, what is it, gray, uh, Gregorio, Gregorio. That is the one, Gregorio, that is very important for us to comprehend. Verse 35, watch you therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes at even, or at midnight, or the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he's finding you slumbering. Cavalier, I'm rich to increase with goods. Ah, you know, I, I can take it or leave it. Uh, today I don't feel like really exercising a lot of character, so I think I'll just kind of let my guard down and do this, that, and the other thing. Tomorrow I'll repent and start all over. You know, we've got to be careful. 
Don't let these bad habits rear their heads. Verse 37, and what I say, he repeats himself. What I'm saying to you, Gregorio, watch, be vigilant, hold tight. Don't let yourself get away from yourself. Understand those three windows to your mind and your heart, the flesh, the eyes, and your pride, your ego, your vanity. It all comes in that package of the pride of life. I won't admit to my mistakes. I won't say an apology. I won't say the two very best words in the American or English language that can really do a lot of good in very, very tough situations. You know what those two words are? I'm sorry. You can go on from there. Point being, we need to understand, hold yourself accountable, be responsible, remain humble so that your pride and your ego and your vanity don't allow you to and prevent you from doing the I'm sorry. And what is it that you suffer wrong? You know, the fact of it is, if we don't do these things, we cause Christ to suffer because we, like it or not, brethren, if you are a Christian, you're carrying a banner. You've got a band around your head saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So people look at you in that regard. Got to walk the walk. Got to walk the walk. And the point of it is today that my whole presentation in this regard is uh, with respect to the world that we're living in and all the things that are going on around us, don't let those threatening circumstances, don't let the anxiety and the apprehension that perhaps is growing in your own life out of the concerns that you have for your kids, your grandkids, and so on, cause you to let up in your Christian walk. If anything, cause it to allow you to bear down, to even get better at what you're doing, to become more serious, more ingrained, more dedicated, more committed to the cause of what Christ crucified in you is all about, so that you can be better assured that you will indeed be in that resurrection helping Jesus Christ from the Mount of Olives reinstitute the government of God. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.com. Thank you.